Welcome to Epidemiology Counts. We thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode on vaping. We recorded this episode earlier, and there has been some breaking developments around the issue of vaping that we didn't get a chance to talk to on the talk about on the podcast because the events hadn't happened yet. So we have brought uh, Craig Ross, our, our guest for this particular episode, back, and we wanted to let you know that you should plan to tune in at the end of the episode where we have added in an extra conversation that we had with Craig after the original taping to, to deal with those issues. One of epidemiology's great successes has been in identifying cigarette smoking as a cause of lung cancer. Some of the pioneering work in chronic disease epidemiology was done in the 1950s and 1960s to definitively link smoking to lung cancer such that today, I think you'd struggle to find someone who wasn't aware of the, rela the relationship or of smoking's harmful effects on cardiovascular disease. In my lifetime, I've watched as rates of cigarette smoking have declined in the United States as the public health message got out to the public. But in recent years, a new trend has emerged, one around vaping, something that appears to be becoming more popular and has some of the same effects as smoking. At the same time, it isn't clear what the health effects are from vaping. In fact, it isn't even really obvious what vaping is. Many have heard claims that it's bad for you or that it is a gateway to smoking cigarettes. So there's a lot of confusion out there and we'd like to try to clear some of that up today. I'm your host, Matt Fox, from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health researcher, research straight from researchers who are deeply involved in this work. Today, we're going to be talking about vaping, and to do so, I am joined by Dr. Brian James from the Rush University Medical Center, and you may remember Brian from our very first episode. Welcome back to Epidemiology Counts, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And can you go ahead and introduce our guest for today? Yes. So today we are uh, very happy to have joining us Dr. Craig Ross. Uh, Dr. Ross is a research assistant professor in the epidemiology department at the Boston University School of Public Health with UMAD. Um, his, research sorry, his research interests include substance use, particularly substance use as initiation, um, and also social and familial determinants of substance abuse, and health concerns of vulnerable populations, including immigrants, youth, and women. Um, Dr. Ross is currently working on a number of studies about vaping, and we thought he'd be the perfect person to ask some of these questions that we have about the health effects of vaping. So uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. Ross. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here today. Great. Um, so, the, so I wanted to say before we started that um, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited to ask you some of these questions that I've had, and I know almost nothing about vaping um, other than what I see on the street and, you know, in advertisements. And um, I've had so many questions about, um, you know, the health effects. I have a three-year-old, you know, when she gets older, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when she's exposed to this? You know, what about when we're riding in subway cars and there's uh, other people vaping and, the, you know, the secondhand effects of such things? So, you know, just a lot of questions that we're going to go right into it. So, uh, first question we have is, what is vaping and how is it different from smoking cigarettes? Well, that's a great place to start. So tobacco smoking is really a combustion process, right? right? We're burning tobacco leaf and other chemicals and we're inhaling the byproducts of that combustion. 
um, it's important for people to recognize that tobacco smoking is the number one modifiable risk factor contributing to death and disability all around the world. It's by far the deadliest substance uh, people can use. Now vaping, um, in contrast, is inhaling a vaporized liquid. Now this liquid is not water. It's not like you're just inhaling water vapor. The liquid is actually made from a humectant base. That's something that easily um, produces clouds of suspension that in which various chemicals can be um, carried. And in addition to this humectant base, there are flavorings added uh, and there's also nicotine typically added in different concentrations. So vapor, vapor from vaping is not harmless, right? It's been shown to have chemicals that may be harmful to cells in people's upper respiratory tract. However, it's generally considered less harmful than smoking tobacco cigarettes. Mm -hmm. um, and just to understand the mechanics, because it's helpful when we get into some of the more details about chemical exposures, um, this vapor is created when you take a small amount of that vaping liquid, right, which was made up of a humectant base and a flavorings, and you run it over a coil that's been heated to a very hot temperature. Now picture if you have an electric stove and you turn it up on high and it gets red hot, that's the same process that's happening in a vaping device. It's a little metal coil. There's a current running through it and it's getting red hot mm -hmm. and that liquid is hitting it and it's forming this vapor mm -hmm. that you then inhale. Gotcha. And one last thing I wanna say about this is that um, there are thousands of different chemicals that you could be vaping, thousands of flavorings. Um, vaping may also involve other substances such as marijuana or cannabis products. So when we talk about people vaping, we're not talking about a single type of exposure. There are many different types of exposures that people may experience. Gotcha. And Craig, can I just follow up on that? So you, you said a couple of times that it's, it's this humectant base that you're adding these chemicals to. What, what exactly is humectant? And is that something that in and of itself is potentially harmful? Yes. So the humectant base is commonly um, what's called um, propylene glycol. Um, and sometimes it's vegetable glycerin. Now people hear vegetable glycerin and they think, well, that's gotta be just natural. But it turns out that these are substances which that when they are heated to very high um, temperatures can give off volatile organic compounds, um, things like formaldehyde, for example. And so they are not harmless. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay, so uh, we talked about some of the harmful effects of nicotine to your health, but could you maybe um, expand upon that? So obviously, uh, you know, as you said, smoking cigarettes has, has a lot to do with um, the combustion and the inhaling of smoke that's harmful, um, but nicotine itself has its own harmful effects. And then as you said, there's maybe hundreds of other chemicals added to um, the humectant base for vaping. So what are some of the harmful effects of all of this to your health? Sure. So, well, let's start with nicotine. Mm -hmm. Nicotine's an addictive substance, right. right? And so the primary issue with consuming nicotine is the potential to develop nicotine dependence. What that does is it reinforces the use of that substance. So if you're smoking cigarettes, 
containing nicotine, you're going to end up smoking more cigarettes. And of course, it's the byproducts of the smoking, which are the primary harmful effects leading to lung cancer, heart disease, and other risks, risks such as that. Um, so the main thing we're concerned about with nicotine exposure is that it's reinforcing potentially a harmful behavior. Um, nicotine may also cause issues for young people, specifically around brain development. So there's a lot of discussion about um, the adolescent brain. Um, there's a lot of um, learning going on through adolescence. The brain is very plastic. It's um, developing a lot of connections. And um, you're very susceptible during that age time um, for having reward circuitry in your brain sort of hijacked by substances, right? So this mm -hmm. dopamine cycle, which is sort of like the normal way we feel pleasure, can be hijacked so that really you need to be deriving your pleasure from the use of a substance as opposed to from other types of experiences. So that's a big issue. Um, we, you know, we have evidence that nicotine exposure in adolescents may affect um, mood disorders, learning, uh, impulse control, um, attention, and other things like that. So uh, vaping is a, uh, should be treated as a serious substance use issue for young people. Gotcha. And, and, and I'm curious, so you know, people often think of nicotine uh, and then they immediately jump to caffeine as being another substance that is you know, addictive, but you know, certainly people don't tend to think of caffeine or consumption of coffee or tea as being nearly as bad as say cigarette smoking. And I think of course that would be correct. Are we, are we in the same ballpark there in that you're taking uh, some of the harmful chemicals from cigarette smoking, but you're taking away a lot of the, the negatives as well. And so you've got a substance that is addictive, but might not be nearly as bad as the smoking itself. Yeah. So this is where, this is one of the great public health challenges of vaping. And this is just a great question because um, there's, there is evidence that vaping compared to smoking is less harmful. And we sometimes in public health, we talk about harm reduction. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're um, trying to eliminate a behavior. What we're trying to do is reduce the health risks of a certain behavior, right? So, you know, just to go to an extreme, for example, um, when people are injecting um, their injection drug users, you know, providing them with a clean needle may prevent the spread of certain infectious diseases. It's not directly addressing their substance use, but it's trying to reduce potential additional um, health risks, you know, such as HIV, AIDS, or other, you know, blood-borne diseases that may be transmitted through dirty needles. So you give them a clean needle um, to say, look, you know, we're gonna start with harm reduction. So I'm gonna now jump back for a second and say, look, tobacco smoking, as I said earlier, it's one of the worst things people can do to themselves. Um, relative to that, uh, while vaping um, is not harmless, it may be less harmful. So every opportunity that somebody has to use a tobacco cigarette, if they instead substitute a vaping product, that is a harm reduction opportunity right there. So here, here's the challenge, right? We, we don't want people who are not using substances to suddenly start vaping 
because that's not great. But if they're already smoking, if we can make that substitution, potentially there might be some net um, benefit to them. And, and if I could just follow up. So it seems to me there, that that's where a lot of the, the problem comes in for people because you used the example of, of needles and needle exchange programs that are you know, controversial and often hard for people to uh, support because the behavior that you're trying to substitute out is an illegal behavior in that case, uh, injection drug use. Um, or in this case, with you know, trying to reduce smoking. Well, smoking is something that we consider to be a negative, but a lot of people would consider vaping to be a negative too. So we don't want to increase that. So how do you, how do you um, deal with the fact that these are controversial programs? Sure. Well, (laughs) so I could go on for a long time about this conflation of criminal justice and health. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think we want to go too far down that path, but let me just simply (laughs) say, let me, let me, okay. So, so um, we're, we're fundamentally, we are health uh, concerned about people's health. Um, people are using substances. Some of those substances are illegal. Some of them are illegal. Uh, whether they're illegal or not, um, people still have access to them and there are health consequences. So fundamentally, our focus needs to be on reducing health consequences. Criminal justice can, you know, ideally, these things would be handled differently. So we're not, you know, putting people in mass incarceration for health problems. Um, But fundamentally, we as health professionals should be focusing on um, what are the various things that we can do to have a net positive uh, effect on people's population health uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes to using substances. So one of the things we could do is try to reduce infectious disease that may be spread for example, by giving people clean needles, Mm -hmm. because there are downstream health consequences of people using dirty needles that may affect more than just that them individually, right? So that's the that's the whole harm reduction approach. And again, I'm always hesitate to use needle exchange as an example, right. we're talking about vaping and smoking because people Very are like, like whoa, different. don't go there, <laughs> right? No, but, and I agree with you. Those are, those are two very different things, and it's important yes. to set those out. But it's so, just uh, it, it's a good illustration, though, of what harm reduction is. So I, it's right. a good example to go to. But let's back up. Um, we, you know, there are um, harmful substances in vape, right? There are ultrafine particles that can cause inflammation in the respiratory tract, increase blood pressure, um, affect heart rate changes. There are volatile organic compounds we already talked about that may cause cancer. Um, There are heavy metals like chromium and cadmium, nickel and lead that can damage the brain. They can affect male reproduction, um, affect the respiratory tract, possibly lead to kidney disease. These are all negative things. But on top of that, you have these very strong effects of combustion, tobacco smoking related to heart disease and lung cancer, um, which are killing, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world. So we really want to focus on getting people off of tobacco smoking um, and doing whatever we can uh, with a harm reduction strategy uh, there. So uh, I have two follow-up questions. I don't know which one I want to ask first, but I think I'll start with this one. Um, So you said there was a connection to cancer for some of these chemicals, but perhaps not anywhere near the 
be linked to cancer as, as um, combustion product, smoking uh, tobacco. Um, but what is the evidence for a link to cancer with vaping? Yeah, well, all we have right now are these chemical studies which have identified carcinogens as being present usually under certain conditions, particularly when people vape at extremely high temperatures. Mm -hmm. There are uh, more of these um, compounds in the, present in the vape itself. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, th these products have only been on the market since 2007. Right. So we have about 10 years of experience with the people using these products. It's going to take longer for us to understand if there's a causal link to cancer from vaping. Um, at this point, all we can say is that there are some chemicals potentially present in vape, which are concerning. Gotcha. Okay, and then my second question is more from a societal standpoint. So I'm going back to the statement you made about the net benefit. So, you know, harm reduction aims to uh, reduce the harm. If people are going to be taking in nic nicotine products, you know, we would rather they be using vaping as compared to smoking cigarettes. However, the problem is what if more people start to vape that wouldn't have been using nicotine products in the first place? So obviously there's been a lot of talk about the vaping industry targeting children, um, you know, new nicotine users, not necessarily children, but teenagers, young adults. Um, so what do we know about rates of vaping, especially amongst kids, amongst uh, teenagers, young adults? Um, does it look like there is an increase in nicotine use amongst the younger demographic because of vaping? Right. So um, this is this is a great uh, question, and it's certainly the most concerning issue. This is a new substance that um, a lot of kids have started using very rapidly. I mean, the prevalence has jumped up to about you know one out of every twenty. Uh, youth wow. uh, using these substances, and that's been growing very rapidly. How, how does that compare to, to cigarette smoking? Yeah, um, it's about, uh, so cigarette smoking is about, um, about double that. Mm. Um, so cigarette smoking is still more prevalent mm -hmm. among youth. That has been trending down. Mm -hmm. So that's been a positive thing. The, the issue is that vaping has been trending up very mm -hmm. steeply. And, you know, we're not entirely sure what it's, you know, it could be a combination of, first of all, these are flavors that are right. um, easy to ingest, yep. right? It's not like you have to smoke something that tastes like a cigarette. You can <laughs> smoke something that tastes like, you know, uh, Belgian waffles yeah. with cream and strawberries. I mean, it's, it's the, the array of flavors is, is quite vast. So you're starting with something which is easily consumed. It's kind of cool, right? This very popular device is called a Juul. Looks a little bit like sort of like a memory stick that you would use in a computer. Um, and, you know, kids tend to imitate each other's behaviors. Now, how did that all start? Well, there are people that claim that there was targeting by, you know, these companies toward kids. Um, there are lawsuits that are pending that are going to, you know, make some determination around that. Um, it's it's hard to it's really hard to you know dissect how this all begins to happen but the simple fact of the matter is that you know th these are um have become popular with youth um and there is also evidence that once youth start vaping they are more likely to begin uh tobacco smoking mm. and possibly the use of other substances mm. 
tell a story. I, you know, I was just walking my dog in the woods and I came across a, um, a, a woman uh, who's walking her dogs and we just began walking together and she, uh, she asked me what I did. And I told her I do this kind of research. And she said, well, you know, I have a 14 year old son and he started vaping mm -hmm. and he's telling me it's harmless. And, you know, what, what can you tell me? You know, I say, well, first of all, it's definitely not harmless. Um, but second of all, um, he's being introduced to a culture of substance use, mm -hmm. right? This, this uh, begin, when you begin using substances, you intersect with people who are using other substances as well. And so, you know, regardless of whether people believe a particular gateway hypothesis, mm -hmm. there's natural connections that are made uh, when people begin using substances and begin interacting with people. And it's very easy to move from vaping, let's say just um, a vaping liquid to vaping a marijuana product. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, the prevalent studies show that um, vaping marijuana is very popular. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's another thing we need to be taking into consideration. Well, that's an interesting point because I always um, thought the gateway drug hypothesis in re reference to marijuana was really talking about, you know, your gateway to the criminal elements, you know, of, uh, you know, once you're going to start using one drug, you're going to, what's the, you know, next thing you'll be doing heroin. Um, but you're saying more it's the gateway hypothesis about substance abuse, you know, le legal or illegal. And um, just the, uh, just gateway into using addictive substances. And that, that's an interesting point. I mean, once you're addicted to one substance, you know, might be a, a lot easier yeah. for your brain to become addicted to other substances. And yeah, many, most people who use substances also smoke, for example, right? right? So yeah. it, it's a, um, and you know, the gateway hypothesis is controversial. Mm -hmm. um, I think the way I think about it is that I think of substance use as a marker of perhaps some other underlying health mm -hmm. issues, right? Right. There was a lot of mental health uh, issues that are wrapped up around substance use. And we tend to focus <clears throat> exclusively on the substance use. And sometimes we never get below the surface to mm -hmm. find out what's the underlying mechanism. Right. So I think that kids in particular who may have um, some vulnerabilities, perhaps they have undiagnosed mental health disorder, um, may begin using substances and suddenly that becomes the focus. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe it shouldn't be, maybe we should be probing a little bit deeper and trying to understand what's underlying all of this. So do you have any information on maybe some of the uh, f finer details on the demographics of, of this epidemic of vaping amongst uh, young adults? I mean, is it mostly males? Is it split evenly between males and females? Is there other demographic differences? I mean, yeah, so interestingly enough, um, when it comes to many substances, men are out in front. <laughs> um, you know, men mm -hmm. tend to take more, uh, have more risk-taking behaviors. Um, you know, not that women don't lead in, a, in uh, using some substances, for example, um, weight control uh, issues may be more prevalent among women, but but men uh, tend to vape more than women. Um, among adults, it's about 5.9% prevalence. Among men, about 3.7% prevalence. Among women, um, we see that similarly among youth. Vaping is more likely to be uh, uh, found in younger populations. So, you know, in young people, we're seeing a lot of it. When I talk young, I mean under age 18. Mm. Uh, then when you get to age 18 to 24, we're looking at about 10% mm. 
of the population and it gradually declines with each age group as you get a little bit older. <clears throat> so it tends to be a young person phenomenon. Um, it certainly is, um, we find it more prevalent in some more vulnerable populations, for example, um, sexual minority populations uh, tend to be higher tobacco, have higher prevalences of tobacco smoking and also therefore higher prevalences of vaping. Um, we also see it in, um, uh, again, uh, among tobacco smokers, we're more likely to see vaping as well. So, Craig, you talked um, a fair bit in the beginning about harm reduction as that vaping is, is something that would be, at least in our estimation at the moment, less harmful than cigarette smoking. And therefore, if we can get people to move from combustible cigarettes to, to e-cigarettes, that would be a net benefit. Uh, among those who are already smoking. Right. Do we have any evidence that vaping is effective at getting people to quit uh, smoking? In other words, so obviously it's, it's a good strategy, but do we, do we actually know that it works? Great, great question. So um, in, in addiction, we're beginning to evolve our thinking a little bit about what does it mean to quit? And we talk about remission. So we talk about periods of time where people stop um, and they may subsequently start using again, but the fact that, you know, we've gotten them to stop for some period of time is a, um, you know, a window of opportunity for us to be working with them. So, um, so let's get to the evidence first. Um, there is some evidence that uh, when people are vaping, they are reducing their use of tobacco cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And there is also some evidence that it does promote cessation. Whether that cessation is sustained is, you know, is a question that some people focus on. Um, I would argue, you know, just from a person focused on substance use and addiction, that, you know, the fact that we've gotten them to that point is a plus. So um, like, all, like all addictive man management of addictive behaviors, you know, the point is to try to sustain these periods of remission mm -hmm. for as long as, as possible. Um, and we are seeing some evidence that that's helpful. helpful. Mm -hmm. But I would advise people, let's say, who are smoking, um, and if they want to quit, um, I first of all, I really encourage people to work with a skilled behavioral clinician um, because what you're trying to undertake is challenging mm -hmm. and it's great to get guidance and good professional advice. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, that's a, um, a definitely something that you should be looking at. And they can guide people who want to quit to the best evidence-based therapies, which currently, um, you know, predominantly are nicotine replacement therapies like patches, for example. Um, those have been studied for a long time in clinical studies and they're, they're, they are effective. And to the degree that um, people want that oral sensation, um, you know, using a nicotine-free vaping liquid may also prove to be useful. But again, I would work closely with a clinician on that. Great. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, what are your thoughts on whether well, actually, let me ask you this first. So one of the barriers to, um, you know, getting people to quit um, addictive behavior and take something else on can often be economical, you know? So I have no idea, having not bought a cigarette or a, a vape pen in, you know, ever, um, well, you know, since college, let's say, maybe we didn't have vape pen. Um, what, like, how does, how, 
if you want the same amount of nicotine buzz, you know, how does it compare to buying a pack of cigarettes? What, what are the economic? Sure. <clears throat> yeah, so that's a great question. Um, we're now on our, I, I don't know, third generation of products, mm -hmm. maybe fourth generation, depending on how you want to count it. Um, the early uh, products, which were called electronic cigarettes, um, the, the industry felt that they wanted to target smokers and calling them a cigarette would be a, a net benefit for that. They, they later found out that was a problem. Um, those products were not very efficient. The early products were not very efficient at delivering nicotine and were not satisfying to smokers. Um, they've since go, gone through several evolutions. One of the evolutions was introducing something called nicotine salts into the liquids these salts helped um, accelerate the uptake of nicotine into the s blood system. And so uh, suddenly smokers found that they were getting more of that hit that they were desiring by using these later generation products. Huh. Um, and so now, uh, and generally, be largely because of taxation, by the way, so this may change. Right. I was going to ask you about yeah. that. Right. So large, cigarette smoking is very expensive. Yeah. And right now, these using these devices tends to be less expensive. Mm. Um, but again, th we're in flux right now in terms of regulations and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that may change over time. But there is comparable nicotine delivery now on these later generation devices. Mm -hmm. And they do tend to be a little cheaper than smoking cigarettes. Gotcha. And you actually saying that you can actually get more nicotine from some of these devices than smoking a cigarette. Uh, there, you can get very high concentrations of nicotine in some liquids, yes. And for some of the devices, you can actually, correct me if I'm wrong, choose the amount of nicotine delivery or... or uh, yeah, that's a feature. That's a feature on some of them, right? So. Yeah, so they, you basically, when you buy liquid, you can specify wow. the concentration of nicotine mm -hmm. from 0% uh, percent up to 6%, mm. um, which is quite high. Yeah. Um, and so um, I do want to point out, but <laughs> I do want to point out that th these, these devices are not regulated very well at the moment. And yeah. so when you say, I want to get a 3 point, 4% nicotine concentration, mm -hmm. uh, the, there's a considerable degree of variability in what you're really getting. That's interesting. Um, and there have been other issues like explode, you know, battery issues causing burns and explosions. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be better regulation of these devices. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about how the FDA is currently regulating vaping? Are there other government agencies that are regulating it? You know, what, what's sure. going on? Yeah. So, the, um, gee, I think it was about two years ago now, <clears throat> the FDA deemed that um, electronic cigarettes uh, or what they're calling electronic nicotine delivery systems or ENDS, uh, they deemed those to be tobacco products, which meant that they fully, they fully fell under FDA uh, regulation. And they came out with a whole series of findings, a whole series of regulations, and gave the industry a time window to come into compliance. Um, there was a scare uh, about a year and a half ago when we youth vaping um, prevalence shot way up, and that f rightly freaked out the people and the FDA, so they accelerated the time window. And under the current time window, there should be a lot of changes happening over the next year. Mm. However, we are also in an environment where 
there's a strong impulse to deregulate products. And it's unclear whether this, you know, fervor around deregulation mm. may have some influence on that time timeline. But um, to the degree that the current timeline is going to be followed over the next year, we should start seeing, um, frankly, a lot of companies go out of business <laughs> because wow. they're just going to be unable to comply. There's going to be a huge consolidation in this industry, which has mm. been sort of a classic startup industry with lots of small companies getting going and being later being purchased by bigger companies. Um, and to the degree that companies are going to have to fall under, you know, a heavy regulatory um, environment, that's going to further drive this um, consolidation. And how, how does uh, advertising work with vaping? I mean, do they have to follow the same regulations that tobacco companies have to follow? Yeah, so um, under the new FDA regulations, uh, they they are severely restricted. Um, there's been this has been a big area of controversy because there have been a lot of claims that, uh, particularly through social media and digital advertising, that um, vaping companies were targeting youth, mm -hmm. and so those claims are still being adjudicated right now. Um, but uh, uh, you know the. The, the regulations as they're currently written saying that basically the uh, companies have to um, make sure that they are um, they are advertising to a predominantly adult audience mm -hmm. and um, there are some technical requirements that to, you thresholds that you have to meet to adhere to that standard mm -hmm. no Joe camel mascots no right. <laughs> no but you know um, so joke what you're referring to is a cartoon that was used by camel cigarettes mm -hmm. that proved to be very popular with kids and be you know obviously uh they got chastised for that that played heavily in fact in the master settlement agreement that was uh, met with the um with the tobacco industry um so uh i just want to say that even even without joe camel you know, our kids are growing up in a certain culture and a certain environment. And even if messages are being targeted to adults, uh, these messages are affecting our children. Right. And so it's not benign, right? Even, even if we have perfect compliance and no one ever advertises to a predominantly youth audience, kids are still going to be affected by it. And so you, you, you mentioned the kids, and I, I think that I, to the extent that I hear about concerns about vaping, it's almost always in the context of uh, school-age kids. And particularly, I hear from educators the concern about what do we do about this particular problem. And I wonder if you have thoughts and, and have their, you know, what's the research telling us around, our, you know, effective programs that's, or, or approaches that schools can take to try and reduce vaping? Right. So um, there, there are some programs that are, um, that are being put out by the CDC and others um, that look promising. The, there's a lot of um, mythology around vaping. Um, an awful lot of young, young people believe they're just vaping uh, water and hmm. that it's harmless. And so wow. there's a lot of educational materials that are being put out to, um, in, you know, through various media formats to make sure that people understand and that schools can clearly communicate to kids that you know this is a substance um, like tobacco cigarettes that has harmful ingredients, and if you know it should it should be something to be avoided. Um, 
Uh, I do want to say also that we've got, um, you know, we've got a situation where um, kids basically uh, have to, um, they get a lot of information from other, other kids. And so one of the things that, um, that has proven very effective is uh, particularly in the anti-tobacco messaging is sort of empowering kids with messages that, you know, big companies are trying to manipulate them. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a campaign currently underway to sort of empower young people to end tobacco use altogether, mm -hmm. you know, charging them to say, you know, we're giving you the information to know that you're trying to be manipulated into using an unhealthful addictive product mm -hmm. and you can, you have control over that. And I think that's pretty, um, yeah. a pretty powerful approach. Um, we'll have to see how that plays out and how effective that might be. Right. But I do, I, we have seen tremendous success in anti-tobacco messaging over time with youth tobacco uh, smoking rates going down. That, that's interesting in that it seems to be taking advantage of the, the inherent desire that I think in some leads some kids to smoke in the first place, which is the desire to rebel. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're using that desire to say rebel against this idea of, of using tobacco in the first place, which is very clever. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant, really. Mm -hmm. It makes sense, too. I mean, <laughs> there's something you want to rebel against someone controlling your body and your life. I mean, can't pick a better, better target than the nicotine industry. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, I just I want to just touch back again on, on the tobacco on the uh, companies that are selling these products. Yeah. Not not all of them are tobacco companies. There are that, yeah. tobacco companies involved. Okay. But, you know, sometimes we talk about the tobacco company playbook. And I, I, you know, this is an area I've been focused on for quite some time, looking at specifically corporate, you know, promoted products that may be unhealthful. And um, we talk about the tobacco industry playbook. Really, there is only one playbook, <laughs> right? Um, companies are in the business of selling as many products as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, even if they do that purely by ethical means, only selling to adults, there are cultural influences in which, you know, kids are living within our society. They are exposed to that. It does trickle down. Um, and so, you know, we're up against <clears throat> a situation where companies really have massive amounts of money to spend promoting products, uh, innovating on product design. Um, and I would just like to say that you know, um, vaping products are different, right? They are technically digital smoking. You are, you are essentially taking a computer and sticking it in your mouth. Right? <laughs> Think yeah. about that. This, you've got a no smart. the kids like it. Right. You know, <laughs> you've got a smart device. And I think that we could be putting pressure on companies with regards to product innovation to embed age verification into their products. Mm. All right. These are, these things have computer chips on mm -hmm. them already. So there's no reason why we couldn't come up with a way to innovate these products to make them impossible for someone under a legal age to use. Wow. Um, we'd have to work through, you know, privacy and other, all sorts of concerns, yeah. but these are not, these are not tobacco cigarettes that are just a bunch of leaves stuck mm -hmm. in a wrapper that you light with a match, right? This is a sophisticated electronic device. And I think that we should be putting pressure on companies to address 
this, you, you know, the use of these products by underage people with some technology. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it, you know, I think some people will hear that their immediate thought will be, well, you know, their kids, they'll figure out a way around <laughs> it. And that's actually, that's probably true for, for some small percentage, but I think overall that could actually have a, a large benefit, but I'm curious how that would actually work. I mean, how would you actually uh, identify the age of a person? Well, I mean, there would, you know, it's done now um, to get certain products or to access certain sites. Um, there are age gates and there are age verification processes. Um, sites like Facebook, for example, can simply look at what you're posting and where you're browsing and they can pinpoint your age with amazing accuracy. Oh, interesting. So in the world of big data, um, you know, Google already knows how old you are. Thank you very much. And so, yes. In other words, these, these devices don't have to rely on me being honest and saying I'm 15 years old. They can, no. in theory, uh, a system could be created whereby it can, it can figure it out. Right. And so, for example, you could start by having to register at a website. The website can talk to Google, find out your age, um, and then have that have some biomarker. Could be a fingerprint, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, the point is, I, you know, they're, granted, there are lots of privacy concerns. Right. And I'm not here to tell you that I'm a huge fan of what Facebook and Google do with our data. Right. Um, but to the degree that we can take advantage of a tool like that to keep kids from using these products, we should be looking at that pretty seriously. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. Well, I have another question that I alluded to in the beginning that I, I um, that is very much at the forefront of my mind right now with Lollapalooza in town here in Chicago. <laughs> oh, nice. And every time I get on an L, there's just a cloud of vape smoke, um, you know, with all these kids. Uh, and, and so I've noticed that even before Lollapalooza, that it seems to be that vapors exhale freely in crowded public contexts, like subway cars, uh, without, you know, maybe the same expectation of a level of scorn uh, that a cigarette smoker will receive. So. Um, you know, two questions. One, are there, are there fewer laws? I guess there aren't any laws about, or you can tell us, about vaping indoors or in, in you know, uh, enclosed spaces. And also, what do we know about the harmful effects of secondhand vape smoke? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, this is a, an um, emerging area of, of study right now. Um, uh, in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed, uh, I think that's dependent upon different transit systems. Uh, vaping here is not allowed on transit here in Boston. Mm. Um, but uh, there is emerging evidence that you, there are second and third hand exposures. Mm. Um, now, a second hand exposure would come from you being on that subway car mm -hmm. and inhaling vape that someone else has exhaled. Right. And there are uh, measurable levels of nicotine and other mm -hmm. chemicals that you are, you are inhaling mm -hmm. from second hand vape. Third hand vape is when that nicotine and those chemicals get deposited on surfaces mm. or clothing. So for example, it's a warning, for example, to mothers with children. Um, when you vape, you are going to get nicotine on your clothing. And if you have a young infant, right, who's you're holding against your clothing and the hand to mouth, you know, um, impulse that they have, there's a chance you're exposing young children to nicotine. So um, this is, again, an emerging area of study. I would expect regulations to start rolling out as this evidence becomes more mature. 
that would you know make it more uniform uh, about places where and where where you can and cannot vape. Gotcha. Because I will say that I've noticed the clouds of smoke that come out of uh, that vapors exhale is about five times the size of a cloud of smoke from a cigarette. So it just seems to cover a much wider area. But it smells like apple pie or whatever. So <laughs> to be less you know disturbed by it. I don't know. Right. Right. So uh, maybe we could end uh, by talking just a little bit, going back just a little bit to to what's actually in these products. So you mentioned we we focused largely on the nicotine, and you mentioned that there were other chemicals that are in these. But but I mean, is it, is it really the case that that companies can put anything they want into these products at this point, or is there a limited uh, range of things that can be used? And how do we know what what the the effects of that are? Or how are we going to figure that out? Yeah, it, right now we're kind of chasing our tail because um, the market has been very spread out. Literally, someone someone counted 7,000 different vaping liquids. And every one of those vaping liquids could have a different humectant base. Um, they can be, when they're vaped, they can be vaped at different temperatures, which may unleash different chemical, um, you know, different chemical volumes and actual different chemical components or heavy metals that may come out of uh, the heating coil, different heating coils made out of different substances. You know, it's just so complicated. And part of the reason I love epidemiology is that I, I love to focus on trying to accurately assess exposure. And as a, a person who looks at kind of behavior, you know, behavioral epidemiology, it's really uh, challenging. And what really drew me to this area is that I think we've been misclassifying, really, we haven't done a good job of really assessing what it is that people are being exposed to because there are just so many um, different flavors. So what, what, do, what do people do when they make a liquid? They, they start with a humectant base, which um, Brian was talking about the massive clouds of vapor. Well, that's because you're using something. Uh, uh, propylene glycol is in fact used on stages to simulate fog, right? If you've ever been to a rock concert and out comes this massive fog machine, that's propylene glycol. It's designed to suspend, you know, to create a suspension in which lots of things can hang for a long period of time, unlike tobacco smoke, right? So <clears throat> that's the propylene glycol. And then to, add, to that, you can add pretty much any food flavoring. Now, food flavorings are tested for safety, but they're tested for ingestion, right, safety. You know, is it safe for you to eat it? They aren't tested for inhalation safety, right? So we're, we're, we're kind of, it's, it's almost impossible for us in health research to catch up right now uh, to the plethora of, you know, different chemicals that could, people could be exposing themselves to given all the flavorings and, and humectant bases and combinations thereof. Um, I've got a research study underway right now where we're testing, you know, some, some innovative data collection methods to try to improve the accuracy of that. And that may be important because, for example, there's some indication that when it comes to um, smoking cessation, that people who are vaping mint or menthol flavors are having more success than people who are smoking or vaping, I'm sorry, other flavors, right? But if you just said, are you vaping? And are you quitting, you know, they're sort of misclassifying what, what it is they're doing. So there, there's some really interesting challenges here. Um, but as I said, generally we know that um, broadly speaking, 
Uh, there are fewer harmful substances in vape than there are in tobacco, cigarette smoke. And therefore, every cigarette you avoid by using a vaping product is potentially maybe a net benefit to you at this point in time. And, and so you said that you uh, were kind of chasing our tail trying to figure out what's in these things. Um, what what is what is actually being done to try and figure out what are what's in all these things so that they can be appropriate appropriately studied and also appropriately regulated? Right. So, um, well, the, the regulations may solve this problem because, <laughs> um, you know, in the future, companies will not be able to put these products out without having a, a detailed chemical profile. Um, at least based on the, how the regulations are currently written, we'll see how that ultimately plays out. Um, but at the moment, um, I'm doing some innovative things in terms of data collection to try to make it easy for people to us report to report the specific brand and flavor. And when we have a specific brand and a specific flavor, we can send that to a lab and we can look at the chemical profile. So we're starting to, you know, the market is starting to consolidate and certain flavors by certain brands are turning out to be more popular. And so we can begin profiling those and getting at least some sense of what's in them. So Craig, uh, we are now recording this after the taping that you and Brian and I did uh, in which we talked all about vaping. Uh, and the reason we, we brought you back was there is some new developments around vaping that we wanted to get your take on. That there seems to be uh, an issue of a, of a new disease related to vaping that uh, has just come out. And I wanted to get your, your first, can you tell us what it is that's actually happening? And then we could talk about what we know about it. Sure. So, uh, well, it is, um, first of all, I'm glad we're having a chance to discuss this because um, the news is, uh, is alarming and I think people need to be made, made aware. So there are really two things that have come to the fore um, recently. Um, this disease you're referring to is a, is a debilitating lung disease. Um, it, it appears to be something like a lipoid pneumonia, although they don't believe every case they're seeing uh, is the same. Sorry, can but, I interrupt you there? What's a yeah. lipoid pneumonia? Well, I am not an, a pulmonologist, uh, but it is, a, <laughs> it is apparently a rare um, uh, pneumonia where you basically lose lung function and you are, have to be put on a respirator. Okay, and so there a severe been, lung infection. Right, it's a severe lung infection. So you, you, um, there have been a number of cases reported of this. Um, many of these cases are among younger people who are vaping and the onset is relatively fast after vaping. Um, so it's, by that I don't mean after, like it's the first time they've ever vaped, but it's closely associated with the use of a vaping device. I see. Um, so we have this, this lung disease, which is quite debilitating and quite alarming. And uh, there's a lot of effort being put in right now to try to isolate <clears throat> specifically whether uh, this is a single disease, whether there are multiple things happening, um, and uh, what the cause might be. The second, uh, so that's one thing. The second thing that's been going on really since April, but has, um, there have been a huge number of new case reports 
coming in are seizures. So again, it seems to be happening more young, among young people. And there seemed to be um, an association between vaping uh, among young people and experiencing seizures that may be immediately after vaping or they may be experienced as much as a day later. So th this kind of gets back to our discussion, Matt, where, um, you know, these, first of all, these devices are not safe, right? In and of themselves, you are introducing chemicals into your lungs. And the most, th the thing you should be most concerned about is that there is virtually no regulatory review of what those chemicals are. Um, and it may be that there's some new concoction um, that has come out that is um, precipitating this, this um, lung infection that's quite debilitating. Um, it may be that nicotine uh, dosages are not carefully regulated and therefore uh, that, that hyper um, levels of nicotine in your body may, may trigger seizure episodes. Um, but the fundamentally that, you know, we really don't have a good idea of what people are taking into their bodies, which makes it all the more difficult for us to isolate what, what might be causing these things. And I, I think that's a really key message. And that's something that you emphasized on the, on the podcast is that these are devices that we don't know exactly what the chemicals are in them. They are highly unregulated. And so <clears throat> it's hard to know what a person is actually ingesting. I wonder um, whether the fact that these cases are coming to light now uh, in almost a, like a cluster that haven't come out in the past, if that tells us anything about whether this is likely related to a specific product or whether it's really just way too early to, to draw any conclusions whatsoever. Right. So it's, uh, this is the, the, uh, you know, the detective work that's going on right now. Um, there are case. So I, one thing I want to let people know is that the food and drug administration maintains a website where anyone who has any adverse experience with any tobacco product, it doesn't necessarily have to be a vaping device, can submit a report uh, to the uh, Food and Drug Administration. And th those things are carefully scrutinized and they ask for quite a large amount of information. Now, these are all, I've looked at many of these forms myself, they're being filled out by, you know, just people in the general public. So the amount of information you're given from any one case, you know, is, is varies from case to case. So um, I, I read one where a mother was reporting, you know, that her, she found her 20-year-old son unconscious, um, or you know, having coming out, coming out, convulsing on the floor and losing consciousness, and um, that was associated with the vape device, which was found next to him. Um, but sometimes other people simply say that um, you know they had uh, they used a vaping device and um, they felt dizzy afterwards, and that's as much detail as they give. So, so until we get to the, given that these are still relatively rare events, um, uh, it's hard for us to get enough information for us to really isolate what might be causing it, given that there's such variability in what these devices may be delivering to your, to your system, right? Yeah, and it seems, you know, it's with, with, uh, outbreaks like this, it's often important to remember that, you know, just because something happened after another thing doesn't make it causal. On the other hand, one of the ways that we, we find out about new conditions or new exposure 
uh, effects is by detecting a cluster of cases and investigating it very, very in detail to figure out whether or not we think something is going on causally. So it may be too early to know what's going on right now, but the more information that people can can put forward, the, the more likely we are to be able to figure that one out. Yeah, and I would encourage if people do want to report these things to try to fill out the form as completely as possible because every bit of information is helpful in helping with the detective work to try to isolate what, what might be going on here. Um, there are 22 different states that are reporting cases. So, um, you know, you, you sometimes you think of something local where there's a local vape shop that's mixing their own liquids. Um, but here we're going across quite a bit of the country. So, and many people do buy their products online and those products could be distributed nationwide. So it just, it is a tough thing to try to isolate. So when you said uh, things are going across the country, are you referring to this, this, this new lung condition? So yeah, there are um, cases, uh, there are, I believe it's 22 states are reporting um, cases of this um, lung disease, yes. And so it could be that there is a particular product that's being, you know, disseminated and that's what's causing the problem. Or it could be that this is actually something that is more generally related to vaping and people just weren't really looking for it, um, and, you know, in relation to vaping before. And so we just didn't, we didn't really know about it. Yeah. And the other thing that happens, of course, is once things start making the news, you know, people become aware. And so, you know, they say, oh, yeah, you know what, I did. I something like that happened to somebody I knew or to me or whatever. And so there's a snowball effect, right, of people starting to generate more information as more people become aware. Um, but, the, you know, the bottom line here, uh, we talked quite a bit about harm reduction. Um, you know, we tend to think about things as chronic disease problems, which, which form over a long period, may have a long just um, induction period, or you may have an acute event where something happens right away. And so um, in the context of harm reduction, you know, when we talk about smokers trying to reduce their risk, we're really talking about those sort of like trying to reduce that chronic, the burden of long-term chronic disease. Um, Lung cancer, we have, emphysema, heart attack. Emphysema, heart, heart disease, all of that. And we, we have to, as public health people, we have to weigh that against if suddenly you're starting to see acute outcomes, which are quite severe, then we have to be concerned about that, right? So um, this is certainly something that everybody should be watching very carefully. I know that, um, that both the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration are uh, putting resources on this to try to see what they can do to isolate uh, any sp common risk factors, whether that's a given product or whether the people experiencing these particular outcomes have a certain vulnerability. You know, we, we really have no, we don't have a roadmap, uh, public roadmap, at least at this point. Just, just too, too early to say at this point. Okay. Yeah. Anything else before we go that we should we should know about uh, this particular set of conditions or anything else that we left out from the the previous podcast? No, I I, think, I just want to reiterate the points, um, particularly to uh, to young. The points to make the young people are that if you are not a smoker um, and you start using these devices, you are definitely introducing new chemicals into your lungs. And we don't know what the long-term consequences of that are. 
And we have some concerns now that there may be some short-term consequences as well. Uh, we don't understand necessarily why most of these cases are being experienced by young people, right? So um, there could be some sort of weird interaction going on where perhaps if you've been smoking for a long period of time, um, maybe you already have scar tissue or lung, your lung tissue responds differently to vape than people who are younger. And I mean, who knows? That's yep. just, you know, it's a hypothesis of the daytime. <laughs> sure, sure. But, um, but young people in particular should take note these devices are not safe and there are some pretty alarming conditions uh, that are appearing to be associated with it. Um, and that's, that's something to take to heart. Thanks, Craig. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. All right. Well, I think that is the perfect place for us to leave things. So I want to thank Dr. Craig Ross for joining us on this episode and Dr. Brian James for leading this conversation. We'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee at the annual meeting, which is coming up this year in June in the great city of Boston. Uh, it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at the website, which is epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon.